Welcome to Episode 2 of Life on the Spectrum, the Autism Family Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Bennison. I'm a broadcaster, special education assistant, and the mom of a daughter with autism. Today, we're talking about the social aspects of living with autism. Not being able to pick up on social cues. It's kind of hard to be in a team, especially if they're chanting a lot. Because, like, for me, my heightened sense is my ears. And I know this is for a lot of autistic people, but I don't like loud sounds. And it's kind of hard to be in teams if they're chanting and you have to be in the middle of that. This is a bit of a hard one to answer because there are a lot of challenging things. But the thing is, I don't normally think about other people. I'm sorry to say that. I don't really like reflecting on myself like this it makes me feel kind of uneasy but I still feel like I'm gonna do this anyway I am a bit of a self-centered b-word at times so I'm not exactly the easiest person to live with and because of this not many people like me and stuff like that and I find it very hard because I'm a social person no matter how antisocial I may seem I'm I'm actually social something that just happens with me constantly is just I'm like five steps ahead of whoever's telling me anything or teaching me anything, well, a lot of the time. Let's put it that way. My teacher was teaching my class in cooking class how to boil water, and I'm like, if you don't know how to do this, you don't deserve to live. Yes! Yes! Yeah, exactly. Sometimes it feels like I'm pushing the conversation too much, like I'm talking too much. Or other times it feels like As soon as I start talking, they start talking. Like, I just don't know what to say to them, you know? I'm not sure, like, how to continue the conversation for a long while. And usually, like, when I would jump into the conversation, I would, like, forget about what I wanted to say earlier. Especially when you're in a group of people. The thing about me is I always seem to get pushed out of groups. I try to join in, but they just keep talking and ignore me. Like, what the heck is with that? I mean, like... I don't know why that always happens with me. I mean, like, with everyone else, they leave spaces for them to jump in. Why don't they do that with me? I mean, like, I try, but they just are like, yeah, it's cool, and then continue talking. Or they just completely ignore me and pretend I didn't say anything. Like, they completely run over me with the rest of the conversation. It feels very frustrating for me, so normally I don't hang out with more than one person at a time. It's easier just to have a one-on-one conversation. No room for anyone to hear the beautiful things you have to say. Yeah, I I agree. Like, I kind of want to, like, just be on -on one-on-one conversations just because of that. That's the first time anyone has said anything I said was beautiful. Normally people think that stuff I say is weird. At least I think they do. I'm not a mind reader. Those are a few of the voices from a roundtable discussion we held earlier this year with a group of teens with autism. And as you heard, the social aspects of autism spectrum disorder can be pretty challenging sometimes. Someone who knows a lot about navigating these challenges is Vicki Ryan. Vicki, I just wanted to go into a little bit about your background. Thank you so much for joining us. You founded Girls Club, this amazing, accessible club, especially for girls with neurological or developmental differences. Your own daughter, Charlotte, is on the spectrum. So can you tell me, first of all, a little bit about your daughter, Charlotte? So Charlotte just turned eight this week. Uh, Yeah, she's a big girl now. So Charlotte... When she was five years old, when I started Girls Club, and very much so still today, has a really challenging time 
interacting in mainstream environments. Specifically, it was a dance class. She loves to dance. She loves music. She's a happy, carefree soul, loves to dance around. So I thought, great, a dance class. I found an adapted dance class, and I was thrilled. I reached out to them. And in that, I found that while it was adapted, they still had certain expectations of the people who were coming, and they were expectations I knew Charlotte would not be able to achieve. Can you give me an example? Oh, for sure. So follow instructions, sit still. I'm like, in a dance class? You're supposed to sit? So it was just a few different things like that. And I thought, wow, like even within our own, quote, community, within a a specialized class, an adapted class, we still don't fit. So that can tell you a little bit about Charlotte, that she needs a lot of support to participate in things. And I thought, where can we go? There isn't anything for her. And that's what led me to Girls Club. Would she try to socialize with other kids at all? No, no, there was not a lot of trying to connect with kids socially necessarily. Like I said, she was kind of afraid of them in a way because they're loud and unpredictable and we used to laugh because at times she was like the loudest and most unpredictable of all the children and yet she was afraid of them when they became boisterous so she would pull away and otherwise she would observe them but always from afar. So what was your vision for Girls Club when you started it? I decided to start Girls Club because I wanted Charlotte to have an opportunity to make a friend. It was as simple as that. And all of the other opportunities we had tried to do that, be it preschool, dance, the swimming, any other times where we could get her around children her age, they had not been successful. And I couldn't really put my finger on why, except for that we stick out like a sore thumb, we're not fitting in, etc. So I had read this book, What Every Autistic Girl Wishes Her Parents Knew. And so within that book, each chapter is written by a different self-advocate, and they were saying, you know, what they had wished for when they were younger, et cetera. And a theme in almost every single chapter is people thought I didn't want friends, but I did want friends. I just didn't know how to make them, or I was scared to, or I was bullied at school, so I became very resistant to trying, that kind of thing. And predominantly what kept coming out is as soon as I found other autistic people to be friends with... I finally had a friend. And I thought, that's it. She's not making friends in these little groups because every other kid in this group is just a typical kid and she's the one autistic kid. If I get her in a group with lots of little kids that are autistic, she might find her little soul match. So how am I going to do that? And that became my goal is like, I'm going to create a social club for girls or teens or women on the spectrum so they can find each other and have opportunities to connect. Because if we're in this boat, there's other families in this boat too, let's find them. So that's kind of what kicked us off. Your vision is a world where neurological developmental differences are not a barrier to friendship, connection, happiness, and self-worth. And I think you've definitely attained that. You've now got hundreds of members. Mm And you're in communities all over BC. Why do you think people have responded so well to Girls Club? I think people respond so well to Girls Club because what we're creating is a culture of acceptance. So when families come and girls come, they realize very quickly, oh, this is different. This is different than anywhere else I go because the expectations are different. I'm expected to just be myself. There's not heavy demands on me. I can participate in ways that are meaningful to me. So if I go to a mainstream social 
thing or like even just at someone's birthday party at someone else's house. Typical kid stuff where they go and socialize. There are these unwritten rules of engagement. There are expectations around participation. We take all of that away. So some girls come to girls club and may sit in the corner and not talk to a single soul the whole time. And when they leave, they'll say they had a wonderful time. And I will hear later from their parents that so-and-so had a wonderful time with her friends at girls club. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. And so little by little, these girls move from the corner of the room to maybe the edge of the table, the craft table or the food table, and then maybe several months later to a seat seated next to another girl, and then several months after that, finally a conversation or a shared activity. So we are giving girls all of the time and space that they need to get there on their own terms, and that's unique about us because as far as I know, there are not other social clubs doing it that way, and that's why it works, and that's why people are happy. It's basically, it's peer pressure without the pressure. Yes, exactly. Because I bring Sophie, my daughter, to Girls Club whenever we can, and she absolutely loves it. When are we going to Girls Club again? And it just fills your heart because it is really hard for our kids to make friends in a neurotypical environment. And that brings me to this. People talk a lot about the importance of integration with neurotypical kids. And why do you think it's important for youth who are on the spectrum to meet and hang out with other kids who are more like them? I think it's important because everybody needs to find their tribe. You need to find your people. That doesn't mean to say you don't have neurotypical friends or, you know, friends at school, friends, and they can be your best. It doesn't matter. I'm not saying choose us, not them. It's a both. Girls Club organizes all kinds of things. There's art gallery trips. There's trick-or-treating. There's taekwondo, sexual health night, talent shows, princess tea parties, the birthday parties. What have you learned from the girls in putting on these activities? What I have learned from the girls is that they're pretty much up for anything and they're much more adventurous than I would have expected when I started. For example, the talent show. I thought most girls with autism also have quite high anxiety and I would never have thought of doing a talent show, but that was a member request. That was three little girls who came to me and said, can we do a talent show? And I was like, um, sure. So I did the talent show. You know, like, that was shocking to me, going to Playland as a field trip and watching them on The Beast. I was like, what is happening? All the sensory stuff, right? Exactly. So much more adventurous, but when they feel safe and comfortable with each other, they're definitely willing to go there. You're listening to Life on the Spectrum. I'm Katie Bennison. Coming up, you'll hear part of my conversation with Michelle garcia Winner. Michelle is a congressional award-winning speech-language pathologist. Her strategies for overcoming social challenges are used around the world. And hey, if you like what you've been hearing, help us out, please, and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast fix. It really helps us reach more people. But first, let's check in with our parent roundtable and hear their concerns about the social challenges their teenagers face living with autism. And I found it just went to warp speed around age 12 or 13. As the other kids changed the social dynamic, the maturity increased, more parent interactions and dynamics that Dylan wasn't able to connect with. And as friends changed and became friends and people got mad and didn't talk to each other, he didn't know how to 
process that and understand it. They made a promise that we're going to meet at 2 o'clock and they didn't come. Or this promise was made and they broke the promise. So I think a lot of those interactions between teens is that complexity. It just kind of hit the wall and uh, extraordinarily intense emotional outbursts, like just the inability to communicate or articulate his emotions uh, without kind of, uh, you know, a lot of self-harm. So I think that was the most difficult. Any group work at school, she struggles with knowing what the other people are expecting of her and what to expect from them. She had this one project this year that she would have failed if she hadn't shown up to talk to the teacher at the end of term. It was a social studies project. They, they came up with a rap, a history rap. And one of the other girls was going to do the tune, and Leona wrote all the lyrics and stuff, and the other girl was going to do the music. But they didn't do anything. They didn't hand it in at all. So the teacher then called them all in on the last day of school, and Leona was the only one who showed up. So she didn't even understand why they didn't show up. All the unwritten social cues. We walk down the street, I can see the two people, I know what they're thinking. I get a sense of what their relationship is, whether they're friends or whatever. That's lost on her. She's still struggling to understand what are those two people thinking. It's the uh, inability to sort of understand what relationships are between other people, what they're thinking, what their reaction might be to the things that he says or does or doesn't say or doesn't do whether he's looking at them when he's speaking, like all of those things, he's unable to kind of really get that. And also he doesn't understand people, like their reaction to him and their relationship to him. Like he might have one conversation with someone at lunch and then that person is his best friend and he comes home and it breaks my heart because I'm like, well, I, I don't know if that person's, or you know. Anyway, we've had a lot of those things where he doesn't understand, you know, if that person really is his friend or not his friend. One of the biggest challenges that come with autism is the social side, and we live in cultures that rely heavily on social interaction. We need social skills to build friendships, navigate conflict, and to develop careers. We also need them to just go to the grocery store or buy a movie ticket. But even the simplest social situations can be very tough for people with autism. So how can parents, educators, and caregivers smooth the way for kids on the spectrum? Well, this is a question Carol Gray knows an awful lot about. She began her career as a teacher in the 1970s, and at that time she had several students with autism, so she developed what she called social stories. Now her approach is used right around the world. She's highly sought after as a keynote speaker, and we are very lucky to have Carol Gray join us on Life on the Spectrum. Carol, thanks for being a part of the show. It's a pleasure to be here. So... This episode is dedicated to helping pave the way for kids socially. So I wanted to ask you first off, what are social stories? Social stories are often very brief narratives, descriptions of everyday events, concepts, skills, and also achievements. And what we've discovered is by placing things in writing following a format that makes the information meaningful, understandable for people with autism, we find that often they adopt on their own new, more effective responses to the situations that we've described. What would be an example of how a social story might be used? Some examples that we are working with in the workshop that I'm currently conducting 
One of the stories that people are working on is for a little girl, Emma, four years old, and she's fearful of using the toilet. And the doctors have said she should be fine to use the toilet. Everything physically is there and ready, but she seems frightened of using the toilet. So we have some people working on a story for Emma. We have another little guy, a little older, who's learning to write, but seems to feel that his letters must be exact, exactly like the model that's up in the classroom. So other people are working on a social story for him. And a social story, not only are we looking for characteristics and how the information is presented, but we're also looking for the process that determines the topic and implements the story. So if I give an example of my daughter, who's on the spectrum, my daughter used to be really afraid of loud hand dryers in public spaces, okay. like in grocery stores, in okay. malls, etc. Yep. So we had to write a social story to show her that these are just machines and they can't hurt you, but it had visuals with it. What's interesting is you're talking about your daughter. I had a student on my caseload uh, who would run from a restroom if somebody turned on the air hand dryer. And just as you did, we wrote a social... I contacted the company that created that air hand dryer, and I said, I need to know how that works. And they sent diagrams, etc. We put that along with text and basically described how air hand dryers work. Now, in the case of that young man, I mentioned in the story that air hand dryers turn off automatically after about one minute. He did not know that because he had never stayed around long enough for them, but he was fascinated by the thought that they might do that. The next problem was getting him out of the restrooms because he would do them over and over and over and over again because now he understood how they worked. He understood that there was an end to a sound that was obviously uncomfortable for him. You know, meaningful frustration, whether it's being at the dentist, we can tolerate something that's uncomfortable if we understand the rationale, if we understand why we're being asked to sit in this chair at the dentist with people crawling all over the inside of our mouths. If we understand the rationale for that, that frustration has meaning for us and we're more likely to stay. Have there been studies done on the benefits? Social stories are now considered an evidence-based practice, which means that there has been enough objective research to determine that, yes, this is an effective strategy. So if parents or caregivers are interested in trying to use social stories, what should they do? What steps should they take? One of the best steps would be to attend a genuine social story workshop, one that is conducted by either myself or what we call one of our social story satellites, which are organizations that now have my materials and they have people trained to conduct social story workshops. Or go to my website, carolgraysocialstories.com, for a good introduction to that. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Every parent wants their child to make friends, to have conversations, to take turns and to share, to feel love and to give love. Humans by nature are social creatures, but when your child doesn't learn the same way as other kids, teaching social skills can be a big challenge. So what do you do? 
Michelle Garcia Winner specializes in the treatment of people with social learning challenges. She's the founder and CEO of Social Thinking in California, a company that helps kids and adults develop social skills and meet their social goals. She's created programs that help educators, clinicians, and other professionals, as well as parents and families. Michelle has written more than 20 books, and she travels the world to talk about social thinking. Michelle, welcome to Life on the Spectrum. Thanks, and thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So my question for you is, first of all, why is it important for people to learn how to socialize? It's in our DNA to seek the emotionality of connecting with each other. And if a student keeps saying, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care, as they age up, at some point, they start to get really depressed and really anxious. Because just like we need food and air, we need human connection to keep us feeling like we're part of something bigger than ourselves. Absolutely. Why is it difficult for people with autism to socialize? So folks on the autism spectrum have some different learning abilities in addition to some biological and sensory processing. But in terms of their cognitive abilities, some of our folks have really great scientific abilities But when it comes to the social world, their brain struggles to understand other people's perspectives, to understand that other people have goals that are different from their own, to be able to understand something as elusive and innate in its understanding as emotions. How do I feel? Mm -hmm. How do you feel? How do we create plans together? This is all part of what's called our social cognition. And I think it's hard today to refute that each of us has many different types of smarts, we call them. Some people are naturally gifted in math or reading Mm -hmm. and maybe not gifted on the playground or not gifted in socially connecting. And that's because their brains are designed. Each of us has a unique brain that delivers us different types of brain smarts. People on the autism spectrum all share a trait of having their brain be more sluggish when it comes to understanding the social dynamics. So what are some of the toughest social situations for children with autism? So there's different types of autisms um, out there, and our work is specifically for kids who have solid to high-level language and learning abilities. But there's kind of two big factors going on. One is understanding others, understanding that people have plans that are different from yourself, understanding that people don't understand you by you just existing that, you know, I've worked with some clients who thought just, I thought that just by showing up on the playground meant I wanted to play, but no one came to play with me because they were standing back just kind of looking at their feet. And they thought that Mm -hmm. because they were there, that meant I really want to play with you. But no one else reads that as being somebody who wants to play, the typical kids. And so that's one of the challenges is understanding kind of the perspective taking loop. What's the message you want to send others? And a lot of the messages we send are without language. Is it any different for teens? Are there different tough social situations? I think what gets harder for teens is, one, kids get developmentally cattier. Kids are uh, more boastful of who's in their group. And then by around third grade, fourth grade, nine, ten years old, kids not only really love who's in their group, but then they sometimes make a big deal about negatives about who's not in their group more verbosity or sometimes meanness about Mm -hmm. uh, who am I with, who am I not with. But I have to say people on the autism spectrum can also, like they're, they're not saints. 
So they have some challenges, you know, they're developmentally on point two through this. And so I think there's a tendency to think everybody with on the spectrum is naive or unaware. And our guys can be pretty prickly at times. And some of our kids can even bully. So we mm-hmm. have to be aware of all of those factors because developmentally, the mind just gets more complicated. We're all born to be collaborative and cooperative in nature. But as we get a sense of ourself, we want different things. And so by the time you're yeah. becoming a teen, depending on where you are on the spectrum, if you have more social self-awareness, you may be feeling really rejected because you're seeing people just relate more actively or and dating is starting and hormones are coming in. So it's a really vulnerable age where we see kids really start to get super frustrated. And, and the same kid maybe five years ago was saying he's happy by himself that, you know, his brain was kind of overwhelmed socially when he was younger, because one of the things we see with younger kids, this happens with some of our older kids too, but with younger kids, they're a little bit more spacey, or they're like, they're happy inside of their brain, imagining whatever kind of passion that they have that they like to think about. But as they get older, there's naturally a little bit more awareness of what's going on around them. And certainly kids higher on the spectrum have more and more awareness. And so then the vulnerabilities are not only the complexity of social dynamics as kids are hanging out in cliques and moving between friends and wanting to date or flirt. There's also the really, really compelling anxiety and depressions that can kick in. So I think that's where we have to caretake. How do we validate a person and help them feel good about where they are and what they're learning while also helping them acknowledge their vulnerabilities and never make it sound too easy. Like just stop being anxious. Cause sometimes people say you don't need to be anxious. Just go join a group. That kind of feedback isn't helpful because it just makes it all sound like it's easy. And none of this is easy when your brain makes something hard for you to learn. It's certainly stressful. You coined the term social thinking in the mid 1990s. What is social thinking? So social thing is the ability to understand our own and others' perspectives and emotions in context, to understand what's happening around us or what's happening to the people that we're seeing on a screen and a story in the news, to understand people's intentions. So what's the answer? How do we help kids or teens on the spectrum get better at social thinking? We have to really feed them what they want, which is a logical way to understand super abstract information. And that's what I've endeavored to do in social thinking is help logical minds think about the abstract nature of the social world in a concrete way so they feel like they can be part of it. Mm -hmm. It's those hidden rules that you always talk about. Yeah. Lately, we've been talking about teaching how does the social world work? How do I work in the world? How do I navigate and regulate in the world? You know, to meet each of our goals. And I think that's a great question to go out on. I, for one, feel very inspired to look for new ways to support my daughter as she learns the hidden rules of social interactions. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you'd like to hear my full conversation with Michelle Garcia Winner or check out some of the other episodes of our podcast, you can go to our website, lifeonthespectrumpodcast.com. Plus, of course, you can always listen, like, and share us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. 
The next episode will be all about navigating the school system when your child is on the spectrum. I'm Katie Benison. Thanks so much for listening.